0: Make your way to Luke chapter 4. Many of us will remember the end of The Wizard of Oz. Young Dorothy holds Toto in her arms, shuts her eyes, and says, There's no place like home. There's no place like home. For all the wonder and the delight and adventure of the enchanted land of Oz, the yellow brick road, the Emerald City, the unforgettable characters, Dorothy still longs for the drab familiarity of her home of Kansas. There simply is no place quite like home. And Dorothy realizes this, and her youthful discovery is, of course, intended to strike a sentimental chord with the viewer. We're supposed to identify with that warm familiarity of home, to sort of sigh wistfully and say, yes, there's no place like home. But this sentiment can, of course, own a very dark interpretation, can't it? Precisely because there is no place like home, there is no pain quite like that suffered when one is rejected by family or neighbors or the hometown folk. There's an intimate longing in each of us to be loved by our own, to be made to feel at home, some place in this world and with some people. And so we find it quite troubling to be rejected by our own. It's such rejection to varying degrees as a way of life for us as Christians. Our belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ renders us uniquely susceptible to rejection from our own. And I think most of us who have known the Lord for some time, who are seeking to walk faithfully with Him, you can fill in some of the blanks here with very specific illustrations. There is a degree in which in this town... Our church is rejected. There's a degree to which we really don't fit in, and we're reminded of that from time to time in various situations. You probably sense a bit of standoffishness from your neighbors. Anyone who would leave on a day like this for church has got to have something wrong with them. I see my neighbors saying, I think, sometimes as I leave, What a beautiful morning today. But you probably sense that. You're not quite in. There's some problems there, some rejection by your own neighborhood, schoolmates. You could fill in some blanks, relatives. There's some people who just simply don't like what you think. And there's an element of rejection there simply because you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now there's a danger in all of this for us as believers because we find rejection very difficult and so as gospel believers we are naturally tempted to avoid it in at least one of two ways the first is to compromise and the second is to isolate compromising we adjust the gospel so that it's not quite as offensive. And even in our own lifestyle, we compromise the way that we are living so that it doesn't stand out quite so starkly, wherever home is. The other means is isolation. We hide, we clam up in order to avoid the offense altogether. We hide out in our little rabbit holes, and stay away from the people we might offend, and say nothing and mind our own business. These are dangers for us as Christians. But we must come to terms, and this is what I'd like us to consider as a church today. We must come to terms with the fact that this was not the way of Jesus Christ, and it is not the way of those who want to follow him, to compromise the gospel or to isolate ourselves so as to avoid rejection. As believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must learn to live with rejection. More than that, we must learn to live triumphantly and hopefully with rejection for the glory of God. Now that's a tall task. But the gospel we proclaim, let's come to terms with it, will be rejected. There are people who will not want it, will not like it, and will not like us because we embrace it. That's our life. But this is our privileged calling. And this calling we, and in this calling, we are in very good company. We serve a Savior. Remember how John put it: He came to his own, and his own received him not. They rejected Jesus. We're reminded of this reality in a very stark way in Luke chapter 4. In the experience of Jesus as he comes to his hometown of Nazareth. And we are challenged with what we should become as we see Jesus in this setting. And we are encouraged with the joy of honorable rejection. As we come to Luke 4, let's remember the context. We've seen Jesus baptized. There's the anointing of the Spirit which consecrates him for his messianic ministry The Father speaks from heaven, unimpeachable proof of who Jesus is. Now Jesus is still in this area of the Jordan and then heads uh, toward the wilderness for the temptation. Look at this on the map. Jesus weathers this storm with these three temptations, defeating Satan with the truth of God's word. But uh, Jesus is somewhere down in this region... Uh, probably somewhere right about here for his baptism. He works his way down here into this rugged region somewhere. We don't know where, but the temptation takes place in this area. It's a time of great difficulty, but also a time that reveals to us who Jesus is. I'll leave this map on just for a few moments, but I'd like you to look back at Luke 4 and verse 14. We see there that Jesus returned to Galilee. We're setting this up here just a little bit, but as we look at the time frame of this Galilean ministry, so Jesus is down here, having been baptized, having been tempted, he works his way back up here to the north around the Sea of Galilee, and in this 45 mile by 20, or 40 by 25 mile. Uh, section of land, this is where his ministry will play out, much of his ministry. There will be 18 months of ministry here. Now, as you look at 4.14 and you read that phrase, Jesus returned to Galilee, that's a major marker in the book of Luke. I'd I'd like to take you to the end of this section. Let's go to 9, chapter 9, and verse 50. Chapter 9 and verse 50. And 51, as you see the division there, you, you might have the heading, as I do, the Samaritan Opposition. But that 50th verse of chapter 9 is the end of this great Galilean exercise of 18 months. And it's broken, it's ended there. We, set, we start into a new section with verse 51, which reads, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The rest of the book is going to deal with his pursuit of of death in Jerusalem, if I can put it that way. He's headed there for the rest of his ministry. But here, then, in this section, as we come to it in chapter 4 and verse 14, we're dealing with this period of time in Galilee. Now, what is the objective in this Galilean ministry? Well, what's the objective at 951? Very clear, isn't it? The objective at 951 is to go to the cross. To head back down to Jerusalem and to die as the Savior of the world. What then is the objective in 414 to 950? The objective in this Galilean ministry, as Jesus is here in the north, is to demonstrate that He is the Son of God and to present the kingdom to Israel. What is the means that Jesus will use to accomplish this objective? We know it very clearly, but it's important that we put it in this context. He uses what? He uses miracles. He uses exorcism. He uses teaching. And in these means is saying through this year and a half period, I am the Messiah. I have come to deliver the kingdom. At 951, there will be a different direction that he takes, and that is the direction to Jerusalem. This is the means. The grand finale, if you're still there in Luke chapter 9, of this Galilean ministry, we see beginning at verse 18 of Luke 9, and that is Peter's confession of Christ. So Peter is confessing exactly what Jesus wants everyone to see during his Galilean ministry. You are the Christ of God. That finale, if we picture the life of Jesus in Galilee as this this great fireworks display of miracles and exorcisms and tremendous teachings, this grand finale is Peter's confession and then leading into the transfiguration of Christ where verse 29, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. He is glorified there in that moment for these disciples, these three to see, and it is a time of great climax indicating who he is. There's then the healing of a demon-possessed boy. And I believe in part this is placed here because of the statement in 9.43. 9.43, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. There is then the teaching on humility. And is that not an amazing way to bring, out, bring to close this Galilean tour? He ends with His disciples, He ends with a teaching about what greatness is. In other words, He closes this Galilean ministry with saying exactly what John had said from the beginning. He must increase, I must decrease. Jesus is saying here, so we are to walk in humility before God. He must increase the transfiguration. We must decrease true greatness is submission and following of Christ. All of this is laid out in this area. So that's the great section that we're looking at. Now as we come back to Luke chapter 4, we find first of all Jesus ministering in His home region. Verse 14 of Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogue, and everyone praised Him. We'll turn back to the, to the uh, map here in just a moment. But we need to understand that Luke leaves an awful lot of material unreported. As we compare the other Gospels, we learn that after Jesus' fasting and temptation in the wilderness, John the Baptist is imprisoned. And Jesus decides to head north for the safer confines of Galilee. Now, Luke just doesn't put the material together that way, but this is what really initiates it. So if I can see Israel again here, sorry, folks. (laughs) Uh, he's, He's down here with John. John attests to the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God as he comes out of the temptation, but John is taken captive somewhere here on the Jordan as he is baptizing. Jesus then hightails it, so to speak, back to Galilee. And we'll pick up his ministry here, but it's really not begun in earnest in what we would call the Galilean ministry. Jesus begins at at this place now to gather some disciples with him. And up at Cana of Galilee, he performs his first miracle, that turning of the water to wine. He sets up his base at Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, a major city sort of settles in there. This is, will be home base for this Galilean ministry. And then he heads down to Jerusalem once again. So making his way back down, he comes to Jerusalem. And this is where he, for the first time, cleanses the temple. He sends out those profiteers and he really irritates the establishment. The Sadducees that are there and in control of the temple and others that are, are cautious of what Jesus is doing, when he does that... He clears out these money changers. He clears out these people that are profiting off of the worship of God. Jesus really irritates the establishment. Now, remember, there aren't as many Jews in Jerusalem and Judea, but they are very intense in their following of the laws of uh, Judaism that had risen up, and they also have some strong political power. So, Jesus, after that, he sort of lights the torch here in Jerusalem when he cleanses the temple. And then he heads back up north through Samaria. Who does he stop to talk to there? You remember this, a Samaritan woman. Now as he comes back up here, this is where Luke says, he, in verses 14 and 15, that he's going from synagogue to synagogue and people are listening to what he's saying. Jesus is now, he's, as I've as he said, he's lit the torch in Jerusalem. He's staked his claim for who he is, that the temple belongs to his Father, that he is the Messiah. Now he is centered at Capernaum and working these miracles and demonstrating in this safer environment. There's more Jews here in Galilee, but there's far more Gentiles than there would be in, in Judea. And, it's, and, and the Jews tend to not be so monolithic. They're, 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 they uh, have different perspectives. And so Jesus can sort of fit into one town after another, and each town receives him a little bit differently, and each synagogue receives him a little bit differently differently. And he's able to keep moving around and to survive during these 18 months to establish for Eden Baptist Church as we sit here this morning that he is Messiah. If he'd have gone to Jerusalem, cleansed the temple, and stayed there working miracles, it's hard to imagine how he would have survived past the first month. But he goes up north and he's able to perform these miracles and do all that he does in this ministry. All right. So all of that, please understand, Luke leaves unstated. If we read it uh, from verse 13 to verse 14, it might seem that he leaves the temptation, goes immediately to Galilee, and verse 14 then would seem to be somewhat confusing. Is verse 14 confusing now when we consider that there's some information that is skipped over? No, it's not. News about Him spread through the whole countryside. Everyone is praising Him. There's a lot of enthusiasm on the part of the common people for Jesus' ministry. So word spreads. Thank you. Now at verse 15, we see that Jesus' preaching could, we know that it could be very offensive, but as we see in verse 15, He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised Him. Let's set on that for just a moment. His preaching was winsome. People heard Jesus preach and they liked what they heard. It doesn't mean they understand all that they heard, but they liked what they heard. He was winsome. He was not rejected because he was obnoxious. And I've endured a fair number of evangelists who have seemed to have that underlying theme in some of their messages. If you're going to be like Jesus, you're going to really get people ticked at you. And the way you get them ticked at you is by being absolutely obnoxious. That is not what Jesus was. People heard his message and they liked it. They approved. It's when he got down lower that they began to respond differently. But his his message was beautiful. To the contrary of being obnoxious, he spoke and people listened. And it says here, praised him, or the Greek glorified him. They talked him up. They did not understand, but they liked what they heard. Now, Jesus ministers then in his home region, and there is a basic positive response. We come then, secondly, to Jesus' ministry at his hometown, beginning at verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. We know this. Let's think chronologically here of this setting. There's something very interesting, I believe, that's going on in the Gospel of Luke, and some would differ with me here. But I'm pretty convinced that Matthew and Mark, when they talk about this same situation, are talking about the same situation. Some would argue that there are two visits to Nazareth, which doesn't seem to work, because you really have to ask why on the second visit were they not ready for him. But I think what is happening here is actually Luke is reaching into the future, and he's taking one scene, and he's setting that out at the beginning, and saying this scene epitomizes the response to Jesus' Galilean ministry. Now, Matthew and Mark are probably following a more chronological sequence here, and they will put this event much later in Jesus' life. I believe what Luke is saying, and doesn't verses 14 and 15 allow for that, right? It says he's going around Galilee and word is spreading. I think Luke is purposefully skipping that. He's going to come back to much of this Galilean ministry, to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. But right here at this place, he wants us to see this. Here is how Jesus was received at his hometown. And this will epitomize all that takes place in the Galilean ministry. Now, some would differ with that and think that we have two visits to Nazareth, but whatever the case, we see that his work was peaceful in places. But now he comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And here he declares, proclaims his divine mission. Not only had he been brought up here, as verse 16 says, we remember he has grown to adulthood here. He is into his 30s. And he was more than 30 years of age when he left Judea uh, Galilee rather, to be baptized in Judea. So they know this man. They know Him very well. In the intimacy of those days, you knew the people in your town. They know Jesus. He comes to the place, verse 16, where He had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, He went into the synagogue as was His custom. Jesus was a regular attender of the synagogue. The synagogues were set up with a very similar structure to our churches. On the Sabbath day, the Jews gathered in synagogues, which were usually built at the center of the market square and they would uh, gather for the reading of Scripture and for worship. Now, you can imagine on this day the place is packed. People are anxious to hear from Jesus, whose fame as a miracle worker and a prophet of God has spread through the whole region, and now the hometown sun has arrived. We'll take a, just a quick look here at a picture of a synagogue, very similar to what a church might look like. You see some of the, some of the differences. The, evidence of a lot of columns and the like, for some reason they took the roof off of this. I don't know if that would hinder us or not, but uh, there, there was an entry, and as time passed, those entries became more significant, more uh, beautiful, and why is that? Because as the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, there was more of a turn to beautifying the synagogue, but this is based on a synagogue that has been discovered. There's nothing that exists, that nothing that's been discovered yet from the time of Jesus, nothing that's survived. But figuring back from the second century, very close, they would probably have been very similar in their structure. And you can see just a basic entry. And on the inside here, somewhere Jesus is standing. And by the way, this back wall was always pointing to where? always looking at Jerusalem, always centered there, as they always realized that that was the center of their worship. But you can't go to the temple every Sabbath, particularly when you're living in Galilee. And so they would gather at these synagogues. This here is sort of an open courtyard, which I've seen on a number of uh, pictures seem to be somewhat typical. I'm not sure all what was going on here. But as they enter into the synagogue and gather, the service would play out something like it has played out in what is existing this day from those orders of service, and that is that they would start with some psalms. They would sing together, and then they would recite together the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and on, on it would go. And they would recite that. Then there would be some benedictions that they would state, and then an officer would go in this main area, there would be an ark. What's an ark? It's a box, not the Ark of Noah, but there's a box. An ark is just a box. And they would take out of this box the Torah, the law, the five books of Moses, and they would, they would, they would unwrap it with a, with a covering and lay it out on a table and it would be read by several people. We can cut that, I think, now. Thank you. And as they would read the Torah, there would, of course, be the people listening and taking that in. Then would come a reading from the prophets. Now, we don't know how you piece all of this together, because we're looking at some of the custom of days that that are after the time of Jesus to understand all of this. But after the reading of the prophets came a sermon followed by a benediction. Jesus was apparently asked, as was very customary in that day, to be the guest speaker for the sermon, and therefore to first read the prophets. So the service is working its way down to the, sort of to the end. He reads the prophets, and then, as I mentioned, he's been asked to speak and to preach. So as was his custom, he comes to the synagogue, and we notice there at the end of verse 16, he stood up to read. This was the custom as well. You would stand to read... Either the Torah or the prophets, whichever reading you were assigned to read, you would stand, and then the speaker, the preacher, would sit. Not a bad idea some days as I <laughs> try to bend my knees after this event. But um, they would sit to speak. Now, notice this in verse 17 the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So he stands to read, and what does he read from Isaiah? A passage that he apparently has chosen ahead of time. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then as is custom and we have this all historically he rolls up the scroll and gives it back to the attendant and he sits down. What's he sitting down for? Sitting down to preach. He is now the speaker. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. That's an understatement in English. In the Greek text the idea here is that the eyeballs, every eyeball in the synagogue was riveted on Jesus. They locked on to Jesus. They gave him their undivided attention. He was now this boy come home to speak. What does he have to say? Every eye fixed, every ear tuned. Jesus says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. fulfilled. What Isaiah the prophet had said and written so long ago has come to completion in me. I am very doubtful that that's what they expected to hear. I'm also doubtful that this is the whole sermon. As verse 22 would indicate, there seems to have been more said. For all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son they asked? A lot of things going on there in that response. But here's Jesus' message. This passage is fulfilled. So, in all the synagogues, Jesus' teaching is well received because it says they spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words. They're they're not upset yet at this point, it wouldn't appear. But here's the problem they're simply amazed. Apparently, no one had ever asked Jesus to speak in the synagogue at Nazareth before. You talk about a tragedy. They appear in their response to have no idea who this man was. Now, I don't understand how that works. At age 12, he could line up the rabbis in Jerusalem and stump them all, but he comes back up here and they're all amazed at these words that are coming from his mouth. I don't know, maybe he did speak in the synagogue before, but there's no indication of that in any of the accounts that they had any idea what was coming. But here he is, the greatest theological mind, now speaking at age 30, which says to me, if I'm right in this speculation, I'll admit, but it would seem to indicate, and you could not prove otherwise, that Jesus had sat in the synagogue into his 30s, patiently waiting for God's time. What do they say? They're amazed. They're awed, these gracious words, amazing speaker. But what do they say? Isn't this Joseph's son? Obviously the question being, we know this is just Joseph's son. What in the world's going on here? Again, it seems to indicate some surprise. This is Joseph's son. You see what's happening? They're very interested in hearing Jesus. But now that he has spoken and awed them, all they can say is, hey, we know this kid. He's lived around here all of his life. Let me put that in just a little different scenario for us just to try to illustrate. Let's say that there's a a young man who excels in baseball. Nobody really knows he excels in baseball because he's always doing other things. and He plays a little bit, but everybody, you know, they kind of remember him sort of playing baseball. But he kind of moves out of the small hometown and he goes off to the big city. And as Providence would have it over the years, he becomes a major league baseball player. And he comes back to an area town to play the home team, what was his home team. And there's all this talk. He's coming back to his hometown to play the game, this great pitcher. And he pitches a no-hitter. And I mean, everybody's going crazy. It's this, this great event. And they go to his old high school coach, and they say to him, who knew this kid growing up, they say, have you ever seen any pitcher do such work? and the reporters just glowing and oozing with all of this praise and the old high school coach says, yeah, this kid grew up around here, and that's all he says. You know, that's not a real strong compliment, is it, about the man's game? And there might be a little something to that, that all this old coach can say is, yeah, we we know him, he grew up around here. Well, he grew up around here, but what about the no-hitter that he just pitched in the major leagues? There, there's a little bit of that, if, if, I may, if it's making sense, there's a little bit of that, I think, going on here with Jesus. There is an amazing sermon that has been preached. There are gracious words that have been offered. There's a theological mind that is sitting before them, and all they can say is, hey, isn't this Joseph's son? We know this guy. He's been around here before. But what is it that he was actually saying? These Nazarenes, all they want to do is talk about the fact that they knew him, but what does Jesus say? Let's focus on this for a few moments. Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. When was Jesus anointed? This would appear to be a reference back to his baptism, when the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon him, and Jesus is commissioned to preach the good news to the poor. If I'm right in my conjecture here, I don't think he's been commissioned to preach to the poor yet at this point. Undoubtedly, he shared the truth of God with people all along, but in a unique way, he is now baptized, or anointed, rather, by the Spirit, and in this unique way is proclaiming the good news to the poor. Gospel of Jesus is the best news that the world has ever heard. It's good news. It's a message of hope for the poor. You'll notice as you work your way through 18 and 19, it is a message of freedom for prisoners, of recovery of sight for the blind, of release for the oppressed, or the Greek word shattered, those broken in pieces. Jesus was called to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, we see in verse 19. That is probably an allusion to the great year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, all debts were canceled all prisoners were set free, and every rich man in town was really worried. All they'd done to get other people's land and to secure slaves who had run out of money and had to enslave themselves, all of that went back. And you started all over again. But boy, can you imagine the singing of the slaves and the people who got their land back after being in absolute, abject poverty for these, whatever, many years? It was a weird time, but it was God's will. He wanted that release, and it seems that Jesus is saying in a sense then that the great eschatological jubilee has dawned, the great last day jubilee has come. He's come to release those bound in sin and to set them forever free. The Spirit of the Lord is on me to preach the good news, to proclaim the Lord's favor. This gracious day of redemption has dawned. Now, is this spiritual release he's talking about, or is it physical release? I think as we watch the life of Jesus, we can say yes. It's both. That's what Acts 26 would indicate, what Luke 7 would indicate, that this is referring to Jesus' healing, to Jesus' rescue physically, and also to the spiritual bondage in which people find themselves. Poor, prisoners, blind, Oppressed or shaken, shattered people. That's what he'd come to do, to release them. What hope is in this message? What a message of thrilling hope. The new age, so long prophesied by Isaiah, has come. This message is fulfilled in me, Jesus says. Yet there is, of course, a subtle negative underlining in this good news, isn't there? Who did he come to rescue? The poor, the shattered, the broken, the blind. The prisoners. That's the people Messiah had come to rescue. And so there is here a point that Jesus will soon drive home. As hopeful and exciting as the gospel truly is, it also cuts like sandpaper across the edge of self-sufficiency and pride. But there's hope in it. For today, says Jesus, this scripture is fulfilled. Messiah has come. Forgiveness of sin is available in a way that has never taken place before. Well, that is very good news. And as verse 22 indicates, the people applaud the speech. They they see his gracious words. Any rejection came not because Jesus was obnoxious, but Jesus also knows, as is epitomized by this statement, isn't this Joseph's son that he's got to go deeper with these people. They're impressed with the speech, but do not see that they lack the requisite faith to embrace the Savior. And so Jesus proceeds with a more pointed rebuke. He rebukes his hometown beginning at verse 23. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. They will quote a proverb against him. What's Capernaum? Remember, that's Jesus' ministry base up here in northern Galilee. News has traveled all through the region. We probably have a case of corrupted store love here, right? Hey, it's great to know somebody. You're familiar with them. You love them. You're a town person. And if you meet in some other region and you're from the same town, you say, hey, I know that town. And there's sort of a a gay family type of familiar love there. But so often, as we studied some time in the past, this family type of love can become very jealous and corrupted when someone who's in the inner circle steps out and becomes something bigger. It might be a little bit what was going on with the hometown coach and the pitcher, right? It probably was his favorite player when he was with him, but now that he's gone on and become something bigger, eh, a little jealousy sets in. As a guy we knew. Who he think he is? And It might not ever be expressed, but there's a lot of that that's going on here with Jesus. And so he says, you know what? This is where it's going to lead. Yes, I'm in Capernaum. And yes, I have performed miracles throughout this region. But this hometown familiarity has been challenged by his sudden fame and the attention that he's given to other cities. And so he knows that what they're going to do next is demand that he do those things here. How would you do him elsewhere, not in your hometown, Jesus? He sees it coming, and so he quotes this common proverb, Physician, heal yourself. And what that actually means is a little bit tough to, to figure out, but the general, is very, the general point is very clear. They want him to do in their town what he was doing in other places. Jesus proposes that he has come to set them free of their sin, They propose that he get busy doing miracles and showing them who he is. It's a lack of faith. And so he says, you will quote this proverb. Notice what he does next. Now he quotes a proverb against them. Verse 24, I tell you the truth. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. Overtones of the rejected prophets of Israel. Indicators of the knowledge of offended storge love. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. We know this guy. We know where he's from. Now, Jesus applies this in a very pointed way. Notice what he does, verse 25. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Remember the Old Testament account, First Kings 17? Elijah is walking through this land that's been cursed by God by a three and a half year drought. It, it, I don't think there's any irony here. I mean, this is, I believe, intentional in Jesus' illustration that it's a time of Israel's punishment and lack of faith. And Elijah's working his way around. Nobody's got anything to eat. They're all dying of starvation. And he comes to this widow who's picking up sticks. And he says, will you make a meal for me? And she says, I've got this flour and I've got this oil. I'm putting it together for the last meal before me and my son die. Well, what does she have to lose? So, all right. I'll make you the meal. And Elijah says to her, you will have flour and oil until this drought is over. That's a wonderful story. But when you're a Jew, and you have a deep-seated animosity toward Gentiles, and you believe that God is on your side uniquely against the Gentiles, you're not real pleased with what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is, you know how many Jews were starving in Palestine during the famine. And God sends Elijah to a Gentile to give her food. Where would that come from? What's he saying this for? People are really starting to warm up to Jesus' message, and not in a very positive way. As he says, verse 26, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Pagans, Gentiles, people outside of God's interest as far as the Jews of Jesus' time were concerned. God sent Elijah there. Hmm. What's true about this woman? She's a Gentile, that's offensive. You know the other thing that's true about her? She's poor. She's poor, she's oppressed, she's shattered. She's in bondage to hunger and starvation. And she responds in faith to the call of God. Illustration number two. Verse 27, There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. 2 Kings 5. You remember Naaman, and this may be intentional too in Jesus' illustration, was very mad at Elisha when he told him to go wash in the Jordan River. But Naaman was in bondage to leprosy. And he came to Elisha with thanksgiving after having obeyed. He came back cleansed. There were a lot of lepers In Palestine, says Jesus, but only a Gentile leper was saved, was cured, was was healed. Now that's about all they can take. We want you to do miracles. We want you, give us the show, Jesus. We know who you are. You've grown up around here. We're not impressed, but show us this big stuff that you're showing everybody else. Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. Puts his finger on that sore spot. And you notice the response in verse 28 by his own people. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now how's that for a hometown reception? Can you see them pushing him down the steps of the synagogue and out the door and to the edge of this cliff to kill him? Local boy makes good, returns home, and is thrown down a cliff. Quite a story. What evidence of utter depravity in the heart of mankind. You know, there's a reason we sang the songs we sang earlier this morning. Because this kind of rejection's in all of our hearts. And it's wound in there with tentacles that cannot be removed. And the only way through it is for God to turn the lights on and allow us to respond in love and appreciation rather than like this. I think we're in danger when we think, oh, if I'd have been in Nazareth, I would have got the point. I would have seen what he was saying. I wouldn't have done this. We'd have all done this without the help and the mercy of God. Who do you think you are telling us anything about our walk with God? He'd touched a nerve. He'd rubbed the sandpaper of rebuke against the raw nerve of self-sufficiency and pride, and they reacted violently. In his own hometown, I think, I think of the depravity of They had known this man for over 30 years, and he had never sinned. And yet, this offense, and they're willing to murder him. That's the response to the gospel. You see what comes out of these ashes? That's why we're here today. We're here because of that message that Jesus preached, and we are here as Gentiles because Jesus has chosen God in His wisdom to turn the lights on and to let us pagans by history and nature respond to this saving gospel. And to raise our hand and say, I'm one of those. I'm one of the poor. I'm one of the shattered. I'm one of the blind. I'm in prison to my sin. And I reach up like that dying widow, like that dying general with leprosy, and I say, I've got one thing to grab onto, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we Gentiles have received that gospel, and we are here today knowing that what Jesus delivered that day in Nazareth was good news. We believe. That's our experience Jesus does exactly what he says he'll do. He releases the sinner. What great joy. What saving power. And filled with that joy and released from our sin, what else can we do but proclaim that same message to a world that is in bondage to sin? But here we come back to the rub, don't we? I guess we have to ask ourselves, The question, are we willing to walk to the brow of the hill? Back to that point, I have no idea how Jesus got away. I I don't know that it was miraculous. There's nothing indicated that it is or that it isn't. Somehow he escapes the situation. But are we willing to walk into that kind of a place? Are you willing to live with rejection? Do you you hear what I'm saying? We've got to go against the stream of this culture because we are told by the psychological powers that be in our setting, that you can never be rejected and you must work all of your days to never allow yourself to live with rejection. Our Savior, the one you follow, the one whose name you say is your life, came to his own and his own did not receive him. We have no guarantee that it's going to be any better for us. We have got to get comfortable with rejection. And until we do, we will accomplish very little for the gospel of Christ. That's an issue you are dealing with in your life and that I am dealing with in my life. We have to get comfortable with rejection, the right kind of rejection. Gracious words. Hopeful message. The door slammed in our face in that conversation, wherever it is. We've got to get comfortable with rejection, and until we do, we'll accomplish little for the gospel of Christ. It's safer to just avoid the rejection, but there's no glory in it. So here's my call, and I think the call to us from this passage, we must learn to graciously, winsomely proclaim and live out the good news, trusting God to protect us and to reward us. Two keys, I think, in this, very briefly. Number one, we have to believe that Jesus will do it. When we share the gospel, if all we look at is rejection and all we're doing is preparing for how we will be turned away, this person won't want to enter a Bible study, won't want to come to church, won't want to listen to our testimony, will write us off and run us out of, the, out of the, where we are. If that's how we're going at it, if that's how we're looking at it, we're not getting the picture. Jesus said he'd release the prisoner and he will release the prisoners. Not all of them, not most of them, if we're faithful and witness. But he's going to do it. You're going to take that gospel winsomely and graciously, lay your life and your heart out in front of somebody who could stab a knife through it, and you're going to say, I've got good news for you. And you're going to believe that Jesus is going to open some eyes, and he's going to do what he said he'd do, and release them from their sin. We need to believe that Jesus will do it. Secondly, I think that we need to realize that, yes, there is no place like home. And we've got to figure out where home is. Our problem with rejection is generally because we think this is our home, and it's not. Where's your home? That will determine how you live with rejection for the gospel. John Piper tells the story of an African Maasai warrior named Joseph. Walking along a hot, dusty road in Africa, man presented the gospel to him and God just opened the man's eyes, Joseph's eyes, and right there and then he responded to the gospel of Christ. Oh, what do you do when you've Learned such good news, he turned around, went to his village and told them about Christ. And went from hut to hut and started telling them what Jesus had done for them. And to his utter shock, the men grabbed him, hauled him out into the bush, and the women beat him with barbed wire, leaving him for, for, to die. As the story goes, he revived, went back and said, there's got to be one simple thing here that's the problem. I didn't get the story right. They could not possibly have understood what I was saying to them. So he reworks his story. Man's a warrior. I guess he's willing to take a little bit, but he goes back in and tries again. Same response. Men grab him, haul him out. Women beat him with barbed wire and leave him for dead. Well, the guy's got a thick skull, a lot of people would say, and he goes back and tries once more. They're just not understanding what I've learned. I've got to try it again. This time as he lost consciousness, he recounts he saw the women who were beating him with tears in their eyes. That's all he remembers. He woke up in his own bed with them ministering to him and bringing him back to physical health and telling him that they were ready to listen and that some had already responded. May I submit to you that when that man received Jesus as his Savior, he took on a new home. Going back to his village was just where he had contacts, and he knew and loved those people, but that wasn't his home anymore. Rejection at home wasn't the big issue. He was serving another country, whether he knew it or not. I don't know how much he knew, but it was that homeland that he served. A few years ago, Beth and I, when we were in Nova Scotia, saw the plaque to a missionary who had labored effectively in the South Sea Islands, winning savage islanders to Christ. I thought as we looked at that, as I recall, in a kind of very empty museum, stuck off on a corner somewhere where they probably felt a little ashamed about it all, this Christian missionary going to convert natives, Nobody had a clue what that plaque was saying or the story behind it. What an amazing story behind that simple plaque of that man who had a very effective ministry in the South Sea Islands near it's somewhat in the region of Australia. The story goes back to 1839 when the London Missionary Society sent two of their finest men to evangelize savage tribes in this region in these islands. There are two men, John Williams James Harris. They went on this long journey from England by sea. All the prayers and the planning and the preparation, the money, the commitment, I mean, this was a great, you didn't just get a ticket and fly over there. This was a huge undertaking and it was a new movement in England to reach such places with the gospel of Christ and they took the message there. Two men, they get off the ship And within minutes, they're dead. The cannibals cut them down and eat them. It's only 19 years later and a man by the name of John Patton says, I'm going to go to those same islands. Well, how how are you going to respond? This guy in your church that you love who has great testimony of faith for Jesus Christ says, I'm going to go follow those guys. What are you going to say? Well, yeah, have a a great time, you know. well, there's objection. John, you can't do that. You don't understand. I love this passage from a Mr. Dixon who said to Patton, you will be eaten by cannibals. Old crotchety guy, I suppose. Probably loved him with all of his heart. But listen what Patton says. One of the great quotations from history. Mr. Dixon, he said, you are advanced in years now, And your prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Savior. Now, let me ask you. Where's John Patton's focus? Where's home? It's not down here. Like the Apostle Paul Patton was simply saying with his words, my citizenship is in heaven from whence I seek a returning Savior. I await a returning Lord. That's my home. When heaven is your home... Rejection here is doable because heaven is a home in which Jesus promises any rejection here for the gospel of Christ will be duly rewarded there, as well as here. Matthew 5, you remember Jesus' words, Blessed are you when people insult you. Blessed? Blessed are you when they persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward on earth, great is your reward in heaven. That's your home. And let me tell you, there's no place like your home. That's the way they persecuted said Jesus the prophets that went before you not the least of which was him. So Jesus example makes it clear to us let's get this and let it settle down. The way of the gospel is a way of rejection. We don't go at it with ugly spirit compensating for our own fears by being obnoxious and harmful to people. We go with open heart, open arms, lovingly and graciously, declaring to them the truth that will probably to many prove very offensive. But we speak graciously of this salvation with a focus on heaven's shores. There's no place like home. And while we live as resident aliens here, We need to bring as many people with us to that glorious land as God will allow us. Is that a bad life? We have the greatest, most positive message on earth to proclaim. You can be released from your sin. You can have a Savior that will make you new. And if we suffer any rejection in it, God rewards us over and again in heaven with his glories. Is that so bad? We've been called to a great life. Let's follow Jesus in it. Lord, we come before you rebuked. We know that we do not winsomely and as effectively as we should proclaim the gospel of Christ. But I pray that you will open us revolutionize us, strengthen us, change us, and make us the people that you want us to be. Oh God, we, we struggle. There are some who are so willing to talk and so hurtful and off-putting to people. I pray, God, that you'll help us not to be that. There are some who are so unwilling to speak, and I ask that you will embolden our speech and show us it really is a call to love. May we be comfortable with rejection, knowing that we have a home, a home where all is right, where love is real, and where rewards await. I pray that you'll move us as a church to this end. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.